This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Everywhere we go, every person we encounter, there's a good chance that smartphone is tracking us. The device stores data on places we've visited, information that could prove useful in flattening the curve. That is an area of great interest to every jurisdiction. There are many, many innovators with lots of different ideas. Take this app that logs a user's recent locations, warning them if they've crossed paths with a known virus carrier. As governments grapple with challenging questions about when and how to relax the current coronavirus restrictions and give the green light to reopening businesses, schools, and community spaces, there's been an increasing emphasis on the potential for technology to assist with critical activities such as contact tracing. In recent weeks, the race to develop apps and policies has occurred at breakneck speed. Apple and Google combined to release a standard designed to ease integration of apps into their operating systems. Countries such as Australia released contact tracing apps that within hours were downloaded millions of times. Privacy leaders, including the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, released guidelines for app development, and courts began to examine the legality of certain uses of apps with the Israeli Supreme Court striking down a contact tracing system in the absence of a specific legal framework. Canada has moved more cautiously on this issue, but the introduction of contact tracing apps seemed likely. What will the apps look like, and what legal framework is needed to safeguard the myriad of privacy and civil liberties concerns? Lillian Edwards is a law professor at Newcastle University, where she is the Professor of Law, Innovation, and Society. She has been leading a fascinating project that seeks to address the legal concerns that might arise from contact tracing apps with a model bill that could be used to establish safeguards and other legal limits. She joined me on the podcast to talk about the latest developments on contact tracing apps, the growing schism between countries, and the legal rules that could address some of the public concerns. Lillian, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Right, before we get started, how are how are you managing? How are things in the UK right now? Uh, they're a bit surreal. Um, we're still in fairly solid lockdown, although there are, you know, there is now talk about an exit strategy and so forth. But right now, the schools are shut, the, youth, the universities are shut, the shops are shut. Um, there's a lot of people self-isolating. I'm in Edinburgh rather than London, and it's very quiet here. Everyone's behaving very well. Okay. Well, that sounds similar to what we're experiencing in Canada right now. The, another commonality is, is certainly the discussion around contact tracing app, apps and proximity apps, which has garnered a lot of attention really around the world as a major issue in recent weeks. I wanted to talk about some of your initiatives and work in the area, but why don't we start with an introduction to the apps? You know, what would they be designed to do and, and how would they function? Well, I think the easiest way to understand these apps is to think about manual contact tracing, I mean, which has always been a part of pandemics, right? So the idea is that if you know someone is infected, either because they've had a test or because they've been diagnosed, perhaps by an appropriate medical professional, um, then you get them in and you have a team talk to them and you try and find out everyone that they've been in contact with for, say, the last seven or 14 days or whatever. 
Um, and then you track those people down and you try to get them to self-isolate and you track their contacts, right? So that's the way that we've historically done these things. The problem with the coronavirus app um, is, uh, the problem with the coronavirus is that um, it has this now well-documented period of about seven days in which people tend to be asymptomatic, but heavily infectious. In fact, there's evidence that that's when most of the virus shedding goes on. So we have this problem that we don't start to manually trace until people have had seven days to spread the virus around. So in an attempt to outpace the, the virus, what's going on with the contact tracing apps is that once you have somebody who has, as I say, either tested positive for the virus or been diagnosed or self-reported with those symptoms, then you cascade out notifications to everyone they've been in contact with for the last seven days as recorded by their phone, which of course we all carry around at all minutes of the day. And you tell them to self-isolate or perhaps to do some other things um, and you get them before they've developed symptoms. That's, that's the thesis. Have we seen these apps implemented in some other countries that have been ahead a in terms of, in, of infection with respect to coronavirus? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, rather like the virus itself, we first saw these apps emerging in Asia. Um, there were some very, very well publicized badly with a great deal of bad PR attached apps in places like China, most notably, that um, harvested a great deal of personal data and used it for more than just proximity tracing, used it essentially as a form of social credit to try and say, oh, you're a, you're a red risk as opposed to a green risk and you can't leave the house or you can't go to the shop or whatever. But um, Singapore have been very much a kind of market leader in this. They produced an app that used Bluetooth, which I guess we can come on to discuss, and was really a proximity tracing app. And that idea, that's been seen as a very successful part of their corona strategy. And so that idea has really been picked up. And now a large number of European countries have or are developing apps. And now I believe um, the US is also starting to think about it. They're very much kind of at the end of the tail of this. Sure, they are. And uh, we're seeing some of the same discussions take place in Canada. Can you unpack, before we get to some of the work you've been doing, can you unpack a little bit the Singapore app, given that that's, it's become the sort of the model or at least the app that a lot of people are paying attention to? Yeah, well, I mean, the key thing the Singapore app did um, was it used Bluetooth rather than any kind of conventional GPS location system. Um, and that was quite a radical and you know, well-received idea in terms of both better data and privacy preservation, right? Because if you use the actual location that your phone picks up via GPS um, or perhaps even Wi-Fi, um, then you're talking about a highly inaccurate piece of data because for the GPS, it could be like one kilometer either side that it's positioning you and you move around within that position. Um, and it's also incredibly privacy invasive, obviously, if you're collecting the location of everyone from their phone every minute of the day for the entire period of the emergency and perhaps beyond if the app goes on working, um, then you're really building, you know, the nightmarian total surveillance Orwellian uh, database. So there was a lot of pushback of that from uh, Europe, but also from parts of Asia like Singapore and Taiwan, which have essentially got some democratic safeguards. Yeah. So because they pioneered the Bluetooth approach, that's become now the de facto model. However, what we're now seeing is a kind of second wave of discussion in Europe about how best to build a Bluetooth protocol-based proximity tracing app in a way that is 
even more privacy protective because a lot still comes down to the architecture of the app. Okay, so we've got they 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 succeeded in effectively in identifying which tech which technological approach was preferable from a privacy perspective. Bluetooth yeah. being both more accurate and having uh, benefits in terms of uh, avoiding some of that widespread surveillance that may come from a GPS based model. But as you mentioned, there's more to the story in terms of how you might address some of the privacy issues, and that that brings up the project that that you've been focused on that that certainly deals with some of the legal concerns. And I know you've been focusing a bit on some of the how this might roll out as well. Can you talk a little bit about the origin of the project and who's involved, and then we can get into what you've been engaged in? Yeah, I mean, if you let me go back a sec to the tech, even though I'm not the tech expert. Um, the debate here became very, very quickly, very heated and very polarized around whether to build a centralized or a decentralized Bluetooth app. So Bluetooth is not giving you where are you, but it is giving who have you been near, right? So if you think about that rolled out over a long period, you are creating essentially the social graph, the map of who's been in contact with who at what time, for, you know, which is a very, again, privacy invasive database, right? So one of the suggestions um, was rather than that information being saved in any kind of identifiable way to a central server that the state can access, you do it on a kind of peer-to-peer -peer basis, a decentralized basis, where my phone talks to your phone, as it were, you know, and knows that it was near your phone and perhaps knows by a rather clever methods that your phone belongs to someone who's been tested positive for the infection. So the contact tracing approach that I mentioned before can operate. But in the centralized model, there is a huge debate going on as to how far this is still not setting up a kind of central database that could be used in future as a form of, of really quite invasive surveillance. So at the time that this debate's kicked off, and, and in Europe, I should add, this debate's kind of polarized down a bit to a consortium called DP3T who are multinational, I think started in Switzerland, who've brought out as a, a real proof of concept, more than a proof of concept, a model of the decentralized approach, which is extremely privacy preserving. All the data is kept on phones. All the data, such as it is, is anonymous. There is nothing central, no central collection of the social graph, right? So it's kind of the privacy dream, right? But there has been a schism there as to whether that collects enough epidemiological data, right? It can do the contact tracing, but can it do more that some countries, notably the UK, would really like? So a schism is evolving. And my worry, to get to kind of the legal part of it, was that this debate was bogging down very largely in the minutiae of these technical architectures. I mean, that's not so that's not important, but it's not everything. And then, of course, just to add in, uh, about a week after this debate really kicked off, we had the Google and Apple intervention into the debate with them producing a protocol which was largely compatible with DP3T, with the decentralized approach, and probably rather less compatible with the centralized approach. So, you know, again, became hugely globally politicized. So about a week before all that, I knew quite a lot about this. I had colleagues who were working with DP3T. I thought, okay, that's code that is highly privacy preserving but there is still stuff going on around it, right? There are still states, let's argue, maybe in Asia, maybe even in Europe, that might compel you to carry your phone at all times, that might compel you to have a phone, 
that might compel you to install certain protocols such as Bluetooth on your phone, right? That's one issue. Another issue which seems more likely in Europe is that there is going to be very strong social pressure when these apps get going to install them and perhaps disincentives if you don't, such as not being allowed to go to work, not being allowed to go to, say, football stadia, not being allowed to go back to university, right? So that all worried me, that, that kind of penumbra word I've been using too much around the actual technological architecture of the app did not seem to me to be being addressed really, either by the technical coding people or indeed by the data protection authorities who of course have a real dog in this fight because we have strong data protection in Europe um, and that would obviously cover any personal data that is gathered, right, and how it is retained and how it is shared. But these problems are not actually addressed by data protection. And just to say, there's a third set of problems that kind of goes with this territory, I think, which is how might it be used in future to discriminate, you know? How might it be used to discriminate against people who, say, feel more vulnerable? So we know already that certain people might feel, perhaps because they worry that it might prejudice their immigration status, they might be tempted not to give away any kind of data. Should they be prejudiced for that, you know? Um, gig workers, zero hours workers, people who aren't sure about technology. There's very many social issues here, which I didn't feel were being addressed. So that's why I kind of sat down and then assembled some people to help me to write a draft bill of safeguards. Okay. That sounds fabulous. And thanks for un unpacking some of that complexity. So you've got the, the technical divide. And can you just highlight where, where do some of the countries sit? Who's, who's kind of come on board with the decentralized model that, as you mentioned, is really effective from a privacy perspective, though may raise some effectiveness concerns? And who's been maintaining the view that what you need is a centralized database, despite some of the risks that you've just highlighted? Yeah, it's been a really fascinating kind of geopolitical exercise, this. Um, so first of all, we had a little wave in Europe of ones that were, I think were quite connected to the DP3T project, such as Austria, Switzerland, um, I think Estonia came in quite quickly and went for the decentralized approach, very much compatible with DP3T and with the Google Apple uh, protocol. Um, we had holdouts from some really big influential nations such as Germany, France, the UK uh, and Ireland and um, a few others that have taken other approaches such as perhaps Poland who've been quite draconian. But from these large Western influences as it were, Germany having stuck very uh, profoundly to the centralised model eventually did a vault fast eventually seemed to be persuaded, whether by evidence or by lobbying, the, the jury is out on that, but decided that the advantages of the decentralized approach outweighed the centralized, so they went decentralized. Um, now we've just heard today that Ireland, I think, I'm not sure this is confirmed, but Ireland seems to be going decentralized. Belgium have actually so far said that they don't want an app at all, which is an interesting approach because there is again a huge debate going on as to whether the upsides of these things do outweigh the downsides. And it's interesting to see a country taking that seriously. But it's beginning to leave, and you know, this is, I say this without prejudice, uh, it's beginning to leave the UK looking very isolated on the centralized, we want to collect more epidemiological data side. And the last point on that, which is kind of semi-hilarious for a not very funny version of hilarious, 
is this is Brexit all over again, because what do we do if Northern Ireland has one kind of app and Southern Ireland has another kind of app and people cross the border all the time and their signals get mixed up and, you know, it just raises kind of nightmarish questions, actually, that we've already addressed in Brexit or not addressed, in fact. But- yeah, no, that's interesting. We've, I've, I've been on a committee that's been seeking to provide advice to the National Science Advisor in Canada on some of these issues. And that question of if one province goes in one direction mm-hmm. and another province goes in another, does this work in an environment mm-hmm. where you need some of that kind of data sharing and where people at some point in time hopefully will be easily being able to transit between different uh, provinces. In fact, yeah. where I live in Ottawa, uh, it's literally just across the river. It's many people yeah. commute to work back and forth. So, so that highlights a, a really interesting dynamic that's taking place. And some might even be surprised, of course, to learn that the Googles and Apples, which sometimes get criticized for mm. their positions on privacy, have sided with the more privacy protective approach as the standard that they've sought to implement. But you've highlighted, I think, really nicely the some of the legal concerns. So you pulled together a bunch of people focusing on the project, and you've got a, a model law that seeks to address some of the issues. What are some of the issues that the, the model bill that you've come up with seek to address? And how did, how did you work out some of those specific issues? Yeah. Okay. I mean, very simplistically, there's a little note at the front of the bill um, that it says that we wanted no one to be penalized for not having a phone or other device, for leaving the house without phone, for failing to charge the phone, for failing to turn on Bluetooth for failing to understand how to make the app work, because these are all very unlikely to be penalised. But my feeling was that it does not hurt to have these in hard law, um, because we already have enough discrimination, uh, lack of power among the digitally excluded, which is, in the UK and in the US, I'm less sure about Canada, about 20% of the population don't have smartphones or don't have broadband or both. Um, And therefore, it's really quite important to think about these people. There's also the issue of those who find these apps and phones inaccessible, the disability part of it, which has had almost no attention, right? So that was that was the first part. And I felt that was relatively easy to code legally. I, I kept saying this is the legal code to go with the computer code um, because that should be a simple prohibition on any kind of sanction, right? Um, what was more complicated was to move on to the second issue, which I think is going to happen really. It's already happening on the private sector with employers of how far should it be allowed to either incentivize you to install the app and keep the app running and so forth and to share your data from the app and how far should that not be acceptable? How far is that a kind of um, breach of basic guarantees here of consent and autonomy and non-discrimination? So in the original version of the bill, there was a lot of discussion between the, the people I consulted, between my team. We went for a proportionality analysis in which such a requirement, you know, such an incentivation or a compulsion could be imposed if it fitted into what's quite a familiar human rights analysis. If it seemed to be necessary, if it seemed to be in pursuit of a legitimate goal, which is, you know, fighting coronavirus and researching it, and if it was proportional to that goal. Yeah. And if there was obviously some publicity around it. So that's your basic kind of human rights analysis. But interestingly, what then happened was that the Australian app has been launched, got to mention that one, which is centralised, but is Bluetooth and is clearly conscious of privacy issues. So it's more on the side of the UK, really. It's quite interesting. 
Um, and what they did was they launched simultaneously with it. Hello. And I could have fallen off my seat. I was amazed because really when we drafted this, it really was a kind of, you know, consciousness raising exercise. Um, but they actually did it. And parts of it are very similar. And what was really interesting was that in relation to this question of compulsion, they just said, no, no, it's not allowed. Don't do it. They didn't do a proportionality analysis. So I'm leaning now, need to, you know, go back to people about this, to um, rewriting our section to follow the Australian line and just say, no, this won't do. You know, but, but the trouble is, I'd need to see how the Australians are going to deal with this. You can say that in relation to the state, but can you say it in relation to workplaces? Can you actually say to employers, you're not allowed to demand that anyone who comes to your work has got this app on their phone sending out contact tracing? You know, is that actually feasible within, you know, what's already in most Western countries, quite a laissez-faire approach to employment surveillance? Uh, so I think that's a tough one. And as someone who's already quite interested in digital workplace surveillance, I think that's going to be a huge area to look at. Yeah, no, I think you're right. The workplace issues uh, ranging from the sort of surveillance that you've just described to even just temperature temperature reading, mm. mask wearing, all the range of different precautions that, that may be required, both of people working in the environment, potentially of customers as well, uh, mm. puts us a little bit in uncharted territory on some of these issues in terms of some of the kinds of demands. Speaking of some of the privacy issues, how you mentioned that obviously the data protection commissioners, privacy commissioners have been paying close attention. What were some of the issues that you were thinking about in the bill with respect to privacy that might be specific to this issue? Well, this is where we perhaps are a little bit different than Canada and certainly than the US because, because we already have strong data protection guarantees in the GDPR, you know, essentially a data minimization of uh, no repurposing without a condition, uh, consent or a new lawful ground, uh, no retention longer than is needed to uh, fulfill the purpose and so forth, security guarantees. I tried not to replicate them in the draft bill, right? Because that would be pointless. You know, if it ever did get into parliament, the first thing they would say would be, we've already got this. And in fact, um, a body that I'm associated with has uh, come out clearly saying that the ICO has agreed that the UK contact tracing app uh, does currently meet GDPR guarantees. Whether everyone agrees with that might be another whole issue, but they say that they've already checked on that one. And indeed they claim that it meets uh, the, the, the requirement of privacy by design and default, which is uh, I think a particularly contentious one when you compare the centralized approach to the decentralized approach. I mean, you might still say, we think that the public good here outweighs the requirement or, you know, the best form of privacy by design. But I think it's something that's going to need unpacked a bit more. But yeah, the kind of bottom line there is that, although I think there are going to be huge uh, lessons to be learned from the European approach for those coming in now, like Canada, um, they're not so much in my bill because I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel, right? So as I say, I've mostly looked at what's around it. Kind of. And that's fair. I mean, Canada does, of course, have private sector privacy mm. legislation in place. It, uh, whether or not it meets the standard of the GDPR is open to debate. I'll 
frankly, well, frankly, it's not really open to debate. It doesn't meet GDPR standards, I think most people would say, but nevertheless, it does at least address some of the issues that you highlighted. I know that your bill also talked a bit about consultation in terms of the public role in some of these issues, impact reviews and the like. What, what did you have to say mm. about that? Yeah, well, that, that's perhaps been British private grief. I'm not, though I think it's been true of a lot of countries, in that there's been a, a, a tremendous amount of secrecy around the development of these apps. And partly you can understand because they do involve security and cryptographic protocols. They could be gamed or abused by Russian trolls. But these are, to some extent, edge cases. I mean, the point I've been making and lots of people have been making is the enemy we are fighting this time is a virus. You know, the virus doesn't read. It's not like fighting terrorists, right, or Russians to a very large extent. And so we've been in an emergency situation. I quite understand that. And, and a friend of mine is very knowledgeable. So people revert to their learned behavior in such circumstances. You know, so you revert to being secretive because that's what you're used to with state surveillance and terrorism. But I think there is a really growing head of steam that there needs to be more openness, more consultation, uh, more involvement of people in looking at impact assessments in these kind of technologies, which are fundamentally going to affect the life of the ongoing future of, you know, everyone in the country. So um, the last thing we just heard actually on Tuesday in the Parliamentary Select Committee where I was giving evidence, which was very, very welcome indeed, and I really welcome, um, is that a data protection impact assessment is being prepared for the UK app. Um, and that it is going to be released on a kind of iterative basis because the app will change as the data is looked at, as the science changes, right? So that's incredibly welcome. We still haven't seen it, though. <laughs> we still haven't seen the source code of the app, which they have also been saying they would release at least to privacy by design experts for quite a long time now, you know, two or three or four weeks. So it's a matter of I think keeping up that pressure towards openness. It's not that anyone thinks I think that anyone is being evil. It's just that it's an emergency. People are run off their feet. But there has to be consideration here for bringing the public on board because one of the big issues, one of the huge issues around attention to privacy here is not just from the privacy advocates. I think it's really from everyone right up to the top, right up to Matt Hancock. Because if people don't trust these apps, they won't install them. They won't download them. They won't install them. And the evidence, the epidemiological evidence, is that you need to get, this is true for most countries, I think, you need to get about 80% of the population who have smartphones. If you don't have 20% without smartphones, you need about 60% of the population. That's enormous. You know, that's more than almost anyone downloads except maybe WhatsApp or Facebook. So you've really, really, really got to pull out every weapon you have to convince people that this stuff is trustworthy, that the data won't lie around for the rest of their life prejudicing them, that it won't be used to discriminate against them. So part of that culture has to be bringing out the DPIA. So, yeah, one of the parts in the bill was that a DPIA should be published because it's not actually required to be published by law under the GDPR. So there is meant to be consultation. And now they have undertaken to publish it. And it's noticeable, as I said, that the Australians also publish theirs at the same time they launch the app. But really what you'd like is for it to be publicised a lot earlier so you can have input into potential problems. 
Sure, no, that absolutely, and that that speaks to the design up on the on the front end, generating trust. Seems to me one of the other ways that you foster and gender trust is with the oversight mechanisms that you have once it is operational. Mm. Um, did you touch on how how you, how do you think uh, oversight mechanisms mechanisms ought to work in this context? Yeah, this is another tough one. Um, because obviously in, in most democratic countries, especially in most European countries, you've already got regulators dealing with some of these or all of these aspects. So we already, every European state that's party to the GDPR has to have a regulator. We have the Information Commissioner's Office. You have a Privacy Commission, yeah. Um, however, as I've just said, my feeling was that this was not just a GDPR matter. It's, and indeed, it might not be about personal data at all. So that brings you into a yet another problem, which I hadn't really got to yet. It's very complex business, which is, again, as I'm sure you know, uh, there is a long history of saying, oh, this data is anonymized now, so we can do what we like with it. You know, it's no longer personal data. The GDPR only covers personal data. There's a category of pseudonymized data, which is essentially personal data where you've taken off the name the identifier and put in maybe a number. And that's still defined as personal data under the GDPR. But we've certainly uh, got a history in the UK of scandals involving the leaking of personal data, even in the health system. And we've also got some history of abuse of anonymized data. And of course, by now, there is a long pile of academic work going back 20 years, I think, saying it's trivially easy now to re-identify anonymized data sets because we have so much big data out there. And all you have to do is really find enough commonalities. You've got machine learning, you've got profiling. So anonymization is really not the safeguard it once was. So that's a tough one. It's a really tough one. So there's another part in the bill that I put in, uh, we put in, that says that it cannot just be a a get-out-of-jail-free card. You should, at the end of the emergency, clearly delete the data. If you're going to anonymize it, then there has to be a real stringent consideration of that. And the reason why I'd say you can't just say you have to delete all the data is because obviously this is going to be an incredibly valuable resource for future research. You know, and that's an argument that's been made really strongly through NHSX and the epidemiologists. So that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I mean, there's already a code of anonymization from the Information Commissioner's Office. I have heard, I am not the expert, I have heard a lot of people saying it does not go far enough and does not, for example, meet the standards of the European Data Protection Board. So I'd like to promote a debate about that. And that seems valuable. I mean, you're right. The the challenges aren't just even today or even much less once this gets uh, rolled out, but what happens afterward? And certainly there's been an emphasis on ensuring that there is a time-limited approach to all of this. Why don't we close just by asking what comes next, do you think, both for this project as well as for this issue more generally is, uh, yeah. as countries do race towards uh, developing contact apps? I think really quite to my surprise, because I'm such a cynic, um, that the idea of having legal safeguards is catching on. And the, the thing I didn't add uh, was that in the bill I propose or we propose um, a coronavirus safeguards commissioner who would be a bit like our investigatory powers commissioner was the way I thought about it, who oversees the general working of the, the interception legislation, which is, again, very complex and very politicized. And that seems to work quite well, actually, the IPCO arrangement. 
it seems to be genuinely independent and yet works well with the people providing the technical information. So that was one model. And the other, another model was to have an ombudsman type person, which might be a tribunal uh, where people could take individual complaints and get them dealt with pretty fast. So all of these ideas seem to be gaining some traction around the world. Not always, not altogether, but it is really interesting to see it coming out. Um, a few things that are happening um, the Council of Europe are going to be coming out with some kind of response to the bill. They put it out for consultation. They've already, uh, who obviously sponsor the European Convention on Human Rights, they're not just European countries, um, they've already put out a statement on uh, COVID-19 contact tracing, which was really quite strong, I think, in saying that ideally you want a voluntary model and you want a decentralised model and you want no uh, leakage of personal data and no scope creep. So it was really quite a strong statement, um, as you might expect from the sponsors of the ECHR. So we're going to see more from them, I think, and also probably from the European Commission quite shortly. So, yeah, it is. It is. There is a lot going on. <laughs> There is, and, and you've done a great job of highlighting how where some of those moving parts are and made a, a, an amazing contribution in terms of our understanding on some of the kinds of legal issues that we ought to be thinking about. So uh, thanks for your work, and thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.